0: Amen. Well, if you have your copy of God's Word and would like to open up to the book of Micah, chapter 6, we're going to look at one huge verse, verse 8. And uh, if you remember last week, we, talk, we started by talking about the fact that this is Micah's third sermon. His book is seven chapters long, and, and this last sermon really covers the final two chapters. And and we talked about the fact that last week he seems to be creating a courtroom scene where God is, is there and, and you have all the mountains around and he's calling the people of Israel to defend themselves against, or de- defend themselves in front of the mountains, in front of the watching world. And God is laying out an indictment against uh, the people of Israel. And if you remember, his indictment was a little bit. Uh, understated because we'd already seen, we'd already learned about all the things that they were supposed to do. And yet God said, I have this against you. And so the people of Israel, they responded and Micah kind of responded with their words. They responded with a bit of insolence when they basically said, God, how much do you want me to give? How much money is enough to make you happy? How much sacrifice is good? Could I even, should I even give my child? Should I kill my child for you? And so Micah responds with these famous words in Micah 6, 8, and it says, He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. And so as we meditate on this verse today, there are three truths that I want us to consider. And if you want to follow along in your outline, the first is this, that God's expectations are clear. God's expectations are clear. Micah tells him, he already told you. He has told you, oh man, what is good. And from the beginning of creation, God has been communicating his expectations for his people. And think about this for a moment. Adam and Eve were given stewardship and the responsibility for creation. They were called to, to, to steward all that God had made, that God had called them to name all the animals. He'd given them all these things. And he said, You can eat everything except for this one plant. Don't eat from this one tree. Everything else is is yours for the taking. God's expectations were clear. He was clear about that. And then as Moses came along several hundred years later and began to reveal the moral and religious codes to the, to the people of Israel, the expectations for how they should live and, and how they should treat one another are also very clear. I mean, just think about the Ten Commandments. Think about how difficult and how challenging these are. Have no other gods before me. One God. Okay. Okay. Now, granted, they lived in a polytheistic culture, so that was a bit radical, but one God. Don't have any idols. Don't bow down to anything on earth. Just worship God. Okay, that makes sense. Rest, uh, respect the name of God. Don't take his name in vain. In high school class today, we were talking about the fact that Jesus' name is so famous that it's the only name that we use as a curse word, right, as an expletive. Except for the name that Zoe made up, but um, that's another story. But God said, "Respect my name," and yet look at how we treat God's name as a society. The next one: rest on the Sabbath. Take a day of rest. Don't work every day. You'll work yourself to death. Rest. Sometimes it should be. I mean, it's it's not unclear, is it? Honor your parents. Respect what they say. Fix your face. Stop crying. Don't knock on the door. Here's a couple other simple ones. Don't murder people. Don't kill them. Uh, don't commit adultery. Be committed to, the, to your spouse. Only sleep with that person. The next one, don't take other people's things. I mean, these are things we learn in kindergarten, right? Don't lie. Tell the truth. And don't covet or desire other people's things. Be content. I mean, how many fights, parents, have happened among your kids when they were stealing toys from each other, right? And yet God, I think God is pretty clear here, and that's just a few of them. And then, you know, maybe I'm a bit simple-minded, but that seems pretty clear to me. And then elsewhere in the law, God told his people to care for the sojourner, the visitor, the foreigner, to, to care for those people. And he says, be gracious and generous to the poor. Help them out. Now, you may be thinking, actually, as I often do, that it's really not that simple. Life is not as simple as, as this. It's way more complicated and there are certainly things that I wrestle with. There are certainly things that I, I think about. How should a Christian think about our relationship to this entity or to that government or to passing laws or all these things? I wrestle with that. What is the biblical way to think in a secular society in relation to that? Should we fight on the grand scale fight to pass laws that nobody likes? Or should we fight to win hearts? I wrestle with that. Or what about as a career? I remember as a kid growing up, I used to pray and wonder, God, what is it you want me to do with my life? Is it okay to to, to go into ministry? Is it okay to go into something else? Maybe, you know, should I be okay working in the defense department or working for the government or working for a contractor or Working for a tech company, or should I be okay being a teacher in a secular school? Is it okay to be a landscaper? Based on what I see in Scripture, all that is fair game. What is not fair game is how we should live. And God seems to make that very clear. I was talking with someone this week about the little letter I put in the midweek. And uh, she commented regarding ordinary and extraordinary work. And a lot of times we like to celebrate the extraordinary. Oh, look, that person's a missionary. Look, that person's going to start this ministry. Look, that person is going to all these great lengths to do this. And yet God is very clear that everybody gets to be called to the ordinary. Not all of us are called to do crazy things. And she commented very wisely. Every extraordinary person needs a whole bunch of ordinary people to help make that happen. The missionaries don't just go by themselves. Most of them are not independently wealthy, that's for sure. And yeah, God's ways might be mysterious. Even how Vern prayed this morning, how God uses pain and suffering in our lives. How God allows bills to get big, so we'll trust him by faith, so we'll seek to be responsible in, in thin times. But how we live out his expectations are not mysterious. God is clear about how we should live. But in addition to his expectations for his people being clear, Micah 6, eight reminds us that God's expectations are practical. They're practical. In other words, God's expectations are things that can be lived out. And God, through Micah, seems to summarize His expectations with two characteristics. And He says to do justly and to love kindness. Or, or in the translation, in the translation that I read says love kindness. Some translations say use other words, and we'll talk about that for a second. But let's think about those two aspects. What does it mean? To, to, to do justice or living justly. Essentially, it seems like that means to defend or stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves. It's to be fair. Darwinian theory of evolution was all about the survival of the fittest, but when you look at human nature, there's something in us that's not about survival of the fittest, but able to sacrifice to great lengths For those who can't, how many times do we look at at the heroism of people like firefighters who risk their own lives to save a person from a burning building? Or police officers or soldiers who will run into harm's way just to save someone else, risking their own lives. James talks about the fact that we shouldn't show favoritism. We shouldn't honor this wealthy person in order to uh, hope that we get a little bit of extra benefit from this relationship. And we shouldn't overly honor the poor. We should treat everybody as best we can the same, not showing favoritism either way. And I think living justly would view each person as an image bearer of God. And this does include the poor. How do we view people who don't have means? How do we view people who seem to can't ever get ahead? Or the foreigner, immigrants. How do we view them? Do we see them as God's gift to creation, to the world? Or do we treat them with contempt? I think justice would want to help them out as much as we can. Or what about the disadvantaged or, as Morgan Proudfoot up at Grace Harbor likes to say, the forgotten? Those people who are overlooked in those places that are cast aside. Or what about those who are different from us? Maybe that's ethnicity. Maybe that's background. Maybe that's religious affiliation. Maybe that's political affiliation. How do we treat those people who are different from us? in whatever number of ways, do we see them as valuable, as creations of God? Or what about those in prison? Years ago, Ned Dietrich used to go to prison before COVID. He would go every week, and he'd pass, take a, he called it the Bible cart ministry. He would take Bibles and loose-leaf papers and notebooks and all these, and he would walk through the prison and and give out stuff to, to the people there. And after, during COVID, all that was shut down. People haven't been able to go. And it sounds like it's finally beginning to open up. And he's praying for opportunities to go back in and to, to help these guys. And it seems like the point, that, point is that we should do what we can to make a level playing field. Not to make it easier for us and more difficult for outsiders or vice versa, not to make it so easy for them and super difficult for us. What if we were to make a playing, that sounds fair. But as I was thinking about this, I was thinking there's things that we do corporately as a church to to think justly, to live justly in this way. And and one of that is the food ministry. And I know a handful of you guys have, have volunteered and I appreciate the way that you step up to do that, to go and drive and bring food back on Tuesdays. Or to give it out for the five minutes that it's here. It's amazing. You know, uh, whether it's Pete and Nathan or Brian and, um, and Sang, when they go down, and they'll, it'll take them an hour to go, a half hour to drive down to Bethesda and 10, 15, 20 minutes to load up their cars with however many boxes the, the Trader Joe's has, and, you know, another half hour or so to come back. And it takes us 10 to 15 minutes to unload it. There's a line of people outside ready to get food, and as soon as Aramal says, okay, come and get it, I, I, I'll go back to my office and work on a sermon, and five minutes later, I hear the tables starting to be wrapped up, and Aramal's putting stuff away, because it goes fast. But what a blessing that is to those guys. Or those who, who come out on, on Saturdays at 11 to, to help with, with the bread that we get from Panera. What a joy it is to, to stand out there and have conversations with folks and just say, here, Here's some bread. How's it going? How can I pray for you? But I think collectively, corporately, we also do this with the benevolence ministry. As you know, we try to. I often forget to say something, but thanks. I'm grateful for Renetta, who keeps putting the thing on on the slides that says, hey, benevolence. But usually the first Sunday of the month or whenever we take communion, we have an extra tray in the back, and it's designed to be for those in need to help out those who have needs. And we don't get a lot of requests. We don't get a ton of requests for help. And in some ways, I guess that's good that people are doing okay. But that money is there. And believe me, there's a lot of it there that I think for any of us... Galatians 6.10 says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are of the household of faith. So I want to tell us, tell you guys, that that money is there. If there is a need that you have that's beyond what you can take care of, there's no shame in saying, hey, I need a little help. All of those requests are dealt with with dignity and respect, secrecy. They're prayed about. But that money is also there for people in our community. So if you know folks who are having a hard time, feel free to reach out. Tell them to reach out. There's a link on our website. They go to the, we, we go locally. You can dive in to Benevolence, and they can fill out a form and do so much of that online. But I want to encourage you, as you have needs or as your friends and neighbors have needs, reach out. Because that's what it's there for. That's what we're doing together to try to live justly to help those who need a little extra. But there are other things that we get to do that's not just with with money. There's things like the rebuilding ministry that a lot of folks did in the end of last month to to help out that family that had a tree fall on their house. There are folks that went and did framing and did painting and did plumbing and all sorts of things, roofing. What a joy it is to work together with other people folks from our community to help a family in need. But then there's also uh, something that, that Vern prayed about. It's, this is something that's still in process, but um, there's a gentleman in southern Maryland who has special needs. He's, he lived as an adult, lived with his mom, and a couple years ago his mom died. Well, if you don't know how to take care of a whole lot of stuff, stuff begins to go into disrepair. Well, now after about two years, things in his house aren't working and there's trash piling up all over the place. And so Vern's neighbor alerted us to a need that was there and said, hey, can we help? It's like three hours from us. Aren't you glad I didn't get on the phone and say, hey guys, let's go clean. But what I did do is I reached out to some of our fellow Southern Baptist churches. There's a church 30 minutes from where this guy, his name is Jamie, where he is. And they went over there, the the Leonardtown Baptist and the director of missions from the Potomac Association and then someone also from the BCMD, the Baptist Convention in Maryland, Delaware. They're they're working together with a couple other churches to help clear out the trash, to help fix the plumbing. I mean, get this. This guy called for a plumber. The plumber came and took the man's toilet out of his house and never put one back. So where do you think he's been using the bathroom? Yeah, outside. Outside. It's become a toxic, unhealthy environment for this man. But thankfully, there are some other churches like ours that are stepping up to help him, stepping up to meet the needs that he can't meet himself. And I think that is living justly, at least as, as much as we can. We may have an opportunity to go down there if, if some of you guys would like to. There's, basically, they've assessed it, and they're trying to get a... a a junk removal team to assess what is there because of the potential dangers. But what a joy it is to be able to help those in need. But it kind of made me ask the question, what does it look like for us individually to live justly? What what does that look like? We can do it together. We can kind of meet these needs together, but what does it look like individually? And I think this deals with how we treat our neighbors and strangers and family members and friends. Is there a fairness that we give, or or do we give others a benefit of the doubt, or do we automatically think, oh, you're from that part of town, so let me treat you with a bit of reserve? I think it avoids prejudice and preconceived ideas or generalizations, and it looks specifically at who someone is and what they are like and what needs they may have. I mean, I don't know about you guys, and and I, I certainly don't want to make this about a political thing, but I have been heartbroken over the last several weeks to hear about people who have, rather than opening a door and having a conversation with someone who made a wrong turn, they're going to drastic means. And it breaks my heart that we are so fearful as a society that we won't look someone in the eye and say, how can I help you? But frankly, doing justice is going to take time. It'll take time to listen. It'll take time to understand. And a lot of times time is the one commodity we don't have enough of. It will take time to act and time to speak up for someone. It will take time to help. How are we using our time? I know several guys who have, who have come to the aid of, of single moms in our community to fix doors and windows and paint and do other odd jobs that would be left undone. And that demonstration of justice in the form of a mercy ministry is a sacrifice of time. And guys, I want to thank you for doing that. And there are some who stepped up to help out those who are sick and disabled with yard work. Thank you for investing the time in those people's lives. But I think justice not only will involve time, it will involve involve sacrifice. Showing justice will involve sacrifice on our part. And, and, you know, there may be the sacrifice of comfort and convenience. It will be inconvenient to go out of our way to help this person in this situation. There will be the sacrifice of resources, and there may also be the sacrifice of familiarity. And there, certainly that kind of comes into play in those big areas. One of the things that Vern and Brian and Ermal did last week is they were up at Grace Harbor for a, a conference, and Grace Harbor is trying to plant a bunch of little churches in, as, as, as I said before, in those forgotten places. What about those of us who might work from home, moving homes, to a place that is in great need in order to help start a gospel community up there. They've got church buildings, in fact, old church buildings that no longer have congregations. What if we as a body were to send a handful of folks to start a church and now be a blessing to a little community up there to do ordinary things in an extraordinary way in order to make sure the gospel is known among those who who would least hear about it maybe we can give up a little comfort and sacrifice familiarity by going overseas or going next door when was the last time that you were at your neighbor's house or your neighbor was at your house And I want to encourage you, as you think about the people that God brings into your circle of influence, who needs you to speak up for him or her? Who is the Spirit of God bringing to your mind? And I want to encourage you, if you are the person that God's Spirit is bringing on your mind, you might be saying, I need help. I need someone to to stand up for me. I need justice. Then I want to encourage you to reach out to a brother or sister in Christ Galatians 6.2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, we can't bear one another's burdens unless we know what they are. It doesn't do any good to sit and wallow in silence when you've got a family of believers who can help. In addition to urging just living, God reminds us that we should also demonstrate loving mercy or loving kindness, or that could also be translated steadfast love. In Hebrew, that, the, this, these two words literally mean loyal, uh, loving loyalty or loving, steadfast love. Loving love. In fact, the second word in, in Hebrew is called hesed, and that is a it means steadfast love, and it's a traitor characteristic that's attributed to God. God's covenant love for his people. It's, it's never-ending, it's consistent. He is, he, he, he does not give up on his people. It endures the betrayal of his people, it, it stands firm amidst the rebellion of his own. And while he disciplines his people, the good news is that God never disowns his people he disowned his son on our behalf so that we would not be disowned ever and as God's people we are called to exhibit this hesed not only but get this not only are we called to exhibit that hesed because of that first word we're called to love it we're called to love it and how often <coughs> excuse me how often might we serve someone with a reluctant heart or an attitude of resentment Oh, yeah, let me do this. How often do we grow weary in doing good? And yes, steadfast love is draining. It's exhausting. As parents, those of you guys who are parents, as moms, you know how exhausting it can be. Let me just get this fixed for once. Why does the house keep getting unclean? Why can't this diaper stay changed? Right? It's time and time and time again. And some people can make loving them even more exhausting. But there should be a sense in which we get, to, we get to demonstrate steadfast love, that we get to love loving others. now it would be easy for us to love loving others to the point where we're putting ourselves at risk. You know how when you go on an airplane and they say if the oxygen mask falls down, put it on your mask and put on your mask and then help others? The whole idea is to make sure that you're doing okay so that you can help those who can't help themselves. And no kids, it's not because the airlines don't like children. It's because they want to make sure that that you're helped first. And so I want to encourage us when we're loving someone else, when we're sacrificing for someone else, that we do make sure we set up some boundaries. And I got to tell you, Danielle can affirm, I'm really bad at setting up boundaries. I'm really bad at saying no. So make sure you understand how much rest do I need? How much rest, how much can I give and how much do I need to hold back? But don't, Don't set the walls, set the boundaries so high that you're not helping anyone because that's not what God calls us to. So God's expectations are clear. He has communicated them and we see them throughout scripture. And God's expectations are practical. We can and should live them out. And finally, we see that God's expectations are communal. God's expectations are communal. I've heard it said that the difference between the Christian faith and any other religion is the fact that religion so often is us doing things for God. God, let me serve you. Let me appease you. Let me make enough noise that you'll be happy. God, let me give enough. Let me sacrifice. God, if I do this, will you be pleased with me? The joy about being with Christ is that it's a relationship. We we get to be with him. It's 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 an ongoing relationship just like the relationship you might have with your spouse or your friend or your neighbor. He doesn't just call us to act justly or to love loving on our own. We get to walk humbly with our God. We get to walk with him. It's not as though he's telling us to go and do something and come back and report instead. His spirit is within us, leading us, walking with us, encouraging with us, giving us words to say and inspiring our thoughts and actions. And let me just kind of illustrate this for you for a second. Danielle, can you come here for a quick second? Let me tell you something weird about Danielle and me. So I, I do this with my kids and they think it's super weird. But when we hold hands our, her pinky and my first finger are kind of overlapped, kind of like golf clubs, right? For those of you guys who play golf, but it's just comfortable. I've done this with Zoe and she's like, ew, I can't stand that. With Melody and Zach, they hate it too. I, I tell you that not because we're weird, but I want to illustrate something. When we walk together, if I'm leading and, and, or maybe if she's leading and I'm following I have to humbly walk with her. I can't just go and I can't just say, you're leading and I'm going I'm to take you this way. I have to go with her. If she's going to turn around, I have to follow along. I have to walk humbly. I have to submit to what she's leading. And I want to encourage us in our relationship, thank you, in our relationship with God, it's much the same way we might want to put our feet down and say, God, I don't want to do that. But yet we have that joy of, of walking humbly with him. God, where you lead, I'll follow. In fact, there's a hymn that talks about that. <clears throat> it says, take up, I, I gave, uh, sorry, the hymn says, take up thy cross and follow me. I heard the master say, I gave my life to ransom thee. Surrender your all today. And then the next verse He drew me closer to his side. I sought his will to know, and in that will I now abide. Wherever he leads, I'll go. And here's the part that Vern prayed about earlier. It may be through the shadows dim or o'er the stormy seas. I take my cross and follow him wherever he leadeth me. My heart, my life, my all I bring to Christ who loves me so. He is my master, Lord, and king wherever he leads I'll go. And then the chorus says, wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, walking with him, I'm going to follow. He's holding my hand, I'm going. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I want to encourage us. He is with us. We get that joy of talking with him, abiding with him, dwelling with him, conversing with him. Through this thing called prayer. And his Holy Spirit works in these weird mysterious and wonderful ways where he pricks our heart and puts things on our mind and says, hey, do this. And we get, to, we get the choice at that point to submit and walk humbly with him or to resist and step back and dig our heels in and say, no, God, I'm not. But God makes it clear in his word. He's, he's given us his expectations, how we should live. And those expectations are practical those expectations are livable and he's not left us alone. He's walking with us in that. But I want to just encourage us before we close that God is not willing to do something that he hasn't done himself. You see, in his holiness, he, is, he, he expects and, and, and is, deserves righteousness on our part. And yet in his holiness, he saw our sin and in his steadfast love, he sent his son as an act of justice to die on the cross in your place and mine. He paid the eternal punishment for our sin with his eternal and perfect life and then rose from the grave. And now seeing us in our sin is reaching out, saying, come to me, all you who labor in heaven, stop laying the burden, letting the burden of your sin weigh you down. Let me take it off you. And so God lives and acts justly, and he loves loving you and me, showing us most clearly at the cross. And then, as he has from the beginning of creation, he delights to walk with us. So first of all, I need to ask you, have you trusted in him? But secondly, brother and sister in Christ, are you daily walking with him humbly? so that you might honor him by the way that you live, fulfilling the expectations that he has for you.